Well, please turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 16. It's on page 822 of the Bible underneath your seat. Friends, this morning I feel like a bit of a fish out of water. Because instead of preaching a specific text of Scripture this week and next week, I'm going to depart from our usual and preach the first two parts of a 10-part topical series on what I'm calling the Disciplines of a Godly Church. By disciplines, I mean the God-ordained patterns or habits of a church that enable us to increasingly glorify God in our life together. You know, one of our primary goals as elders of Redeeming Grace Church is to constantly be thinking about what it means and what it looks like, not only for us to live faithfully as individuals, but to live faithfully as the church. So what are the disciplines of a godly church, you ask? Well, I've chosen 10, and I'm sure there are more. This morning's discipline that we'll look at is gather. Next week, we'll look at the habit of listen. And then in coming months, pray, sing, submit, serve, disciple, evangelize, give, and send. I'm sure this list isn't exhaustive again, but these are the habits. These are the patterns that we'll look at together. Again, this this week, gather, next week, listen. And then the first Sunday of September, we're jumping back into our expository series in the book of Matthew. Corey is a professing 30-year-old believer. He's a young professional that has a successful real estate career. He's attended church a few times when he wasn't with clients on a Sunday, but he hasn't found the church with the perfect selection of worship and ministry entrees that he prefers. He, He digs the music at church A, the preaching at church B, and the young professionals ministry at church C. And so rather than commit himself to one specific church, Corey decided to to watch the live stream of the music at church A, to catch the podcast of the preaching at church B, and then join the Thursday night young professionals Bible study at church C. Seems to be working out okay. Tristan and Emily are members of Hoover Baptist Church, but their attendance is spotty. When they're not spending the weekend at the lake, it seems like kids' extracurricular events and home projects eat into their schedule. Sometimes they're just too tired to attend. They make it to the church's worship gathering when they can, which amounts to about once or twice a month. Jonathan and Chelsea attended the church near them before the pandemic began. But when the shutdown occurred, their church shifted to a live stream only service. Once they realized how easy it was to worship God in their jammies in front of their 75-inch big screen with surround sound, well, Jonathan and Chelsea decided to stick with that approach once their church reopened. Now they're regular attenders of the virtual campus of The Vibe, a church in another state. If only these fake examples were far out from how many people approach the gathering of God's people the local church. The importance of the church's gathering has been cheapened by many different factors. Some of them are cultural, like the individualism and consumerism of our culture that becomes the lens through which we view as Christians, our Christianity. It's about what I want, when I want it, how I want it. If I can't have it, well, I'm not going. 
Of course, the pandemic just exacerbated these tendencies. The shift of churches to live stream only was motivated by a, certainly a concern for public health. But once churches began to reopen, many adopted, many churches adopted the live stream as a primary strategy of the church's witness. As one pastor here locally told me, live stream is here to stay. People would rather tune in than turn up. And while he rightly diagnosed the consumerism of people's hearts, I fear that we're in danger of showing the world a picture of Christianity that is purely individual. We've individualized both our evangelism and our discipleship in front of a screen. What's more, there's just the normal run-of-the-mill temptation in every one of our hearts to lose sight of the majesty and the authority and the astounding grace of our God. We lose sight of the heavenly city that lies before us because our hearts are wrapped around this earthly one. And so things like gathering with God's people trail in the rear of the priority train. But friends, the Bible could not be clearer. The church must gather. God's people must gather with a flesh and blood congregation physically week after week after week. God has designed the gathering of his church for the spiritual good of his people, a good that you cannot experience without gathering. And it means that we, as we gather week in and week out, we are contributing to each other's good, helping others, helping each other persevere and endure in Christ. When it comes to the habits of a church growing in godliness, in a, in a way, the gathering of the body is the most basic habit, isn't it? It's the habit that's fundamental to all the rest. All the other disciplines depend on this one. As I considered how to structure the sermon this morning, I wanted us to move past merely, hey, God told us to gather, do it. <laughs> I mean, in some ways, that's all we need, right? This is what the Bible has prescribed to us. We're submitting to the Bible. We're going to do it. But more than that this morning, I'm praying that the Lord through his word would just again stun us with the privilege that we have to be included by grace as his people and the privilege that we have to represent Jesus corporately together. In a sense, friends, we'll never understand what we do as a church until we better understand who we are as a church. Let me give you the main idea this morning. Here's the, the thesis statement that will shape the sermon. Don't neglect the gathering of the church. It's essential for your Christian identity and vital for your Christian discipleship. Don't neglect the gathering of the church. It's essential for your Christian identity and vital for your Christian discipleship. Two points this morning. Number one, we gather to be a gathering. And number two, we gather as God's people. Well, I'm sure that first point sounds a little strange to you, doesn't it? We gather to be a gathering. That sounds redundant, doesn't it? But let me ask you a question. Why do you come to church? I'm preaching to the choir this morning. You're here. Praise the Lord. Why do you come? Perhaps some of our teens might answer, well, because my parents made me. And I would say, praise God. Right? <laughs> Others might list a habit or a duty or the, maybe the desire to socialize or to get their kids under the right influences. I trust that many of us would say that we want to receive God's life-giving word and worship with God's people. Well, let me give you one right answer to that question, why do you gather? 
We come to church because we are the church. According to the New Testament, a local church by nature is the gathering of God's people in a specific place. It is certainly more than a gathering, but it is not less. The word in the original Greek that's translated church is the word ecclesia or ecclesia. That's why ecclesiology is the study of the church. Ecclesia literally means, that's right, gathering or assembly. In ancient Greek culture, the ecclesia often denoted a political gathering of the citizens for making decisions on judicial and civic matters. The ecclesia in Greek culture was used to describe a particular people in a particular place. Often in an effort to distinguish the people of God from a building, you'll hear, hear well-meaning Christians say something like, well, the church is a people, not a place. And of course, if you're contrasting the people of God from a building, certainly that's true. But the word in its original Greco-Roman context referred to a people who were a people only because they gathered together in a place. But at the end of the day, we understand biblical words by how they're used, not just in the original culture, but how they're used in the Bible. So let's take a look at the very first use of the word church in the Bible. Throughout his gospel, up, into, up to Matthew 16, Matthew has been showing in sparkling detail that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. He's the Messianic King. His incarnation on earth signaled the fulfillment of all God's saving promises, His saving reign over His people. All God's promises find their yes and amen in Jesus the King. Jesus proclaimed things like this, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He told his followers to seek first the kingdom of God and preach the good news of the kingdom. But look what happens in Matthew 16. Right after Peter in verse 16 accurately confessed the identity of Jesus. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And then what does Jesus say to Peter in verse 18? I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my, not my kingdom, I will build my church. Wait, what? The, the ecclesia? The, the, not the kingdom? I mean, how strange is it that this political word is the word that Jesus described for what he will do in gathering his people? All the talk was about the kingdom, and he says, I'm going to build my church. Friends, this idea that God gathers his people into an assembly or a congregation was not a new idea in the Bible. In the Old Testament, we read of the day of the assembly or the assembly of the Lord or the assembly of Israel. Do you see our call to worship this morning, right? Sing a new song in the assembly of the godly. It's from Psalm 149. Later in biblical history, when God's people were in exile and disassembled outside the land, the prophet Joel in chapter 2 prophesied of a day when the Spirit of God would be outpoured and the congregation, the assembly, would regather. So when Jesus said to Peter, upon this rock I will build my church, he's talking about regathering the exiles, right? Not the ones outside the physical land, but he's going to build a gathering of exiles redeemed from sin and the penalty of death, the church of the Lord Jesus. 
And by God's design, this end time church, this assembly of his new covenant people would gather together in particular local churches until he returns. They're like living, breathing microcosms of the full assembly of the redeemed. And so if you flip over to Matthew 18, you'll find Jesus telling his disciples in verse 17 that unrepentant sin should be brought before whom? The church. Now surely there, Jesus can't be talking about the full end time assembly, the covenant people of God, right? No, he's talking about a particular expression of that full people. He's talking about a local church. So friend, right away before, but even before Jesus died on the cross, before he rose from the grave, before he poured out his spirit at Pentecost, we get the picture that he's doing something monumental, the church will gather because Jesus gathered it. He's the one who builds his people. It's his church. He's the one who assembles it. And guess what happened after Jesus rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven? We read the book of Acts. Almost immediately, Luke, the author, starts referring to the church. Now, sometimes Luke talks about all Christians, but he often refers to by the church, such as the church at Jerusalem or the church at Antioch. He describes Paul and his companions greeting and gathering the elders in the church at Ephesus. Throughout his ministry, the apostle Paul wrote letters to individual churches and gave instruction about these churches' life and leadership and ministry. He used phrases like this, when you come together as a church, that's 1 Corinthians 11, referring to the Lord's Supper. Or in 1 Corinthians 14, he gives instructions about how the church is to order their services. The whole church comes together. Paul spoke of the gathering of the church like it was a distinct event because indeed it was. So much so that churches began to conceive of what they're doing and they even had named a specific day of the week. For, they gave a name to the day of the week that they met on. They gather together on the Lord's day. And Paul instructed local churches on the Lord's Day to do certain things like teaching and admonishing one another and singing, right? Teaching and admonishing one another in the Word, singing to one another, reading Scripture publicly, taking the Lord's Supper together. These things can only be done if the church gathers. The other habits of the church cannot be done unless the church assembles. So, beloved, the way that the New Testament uses the word ecclesia is consistent with the way that it was used in its Greco-Roman context and in its Old Testament roots. It's a gathering of a people in a place. Now, I know what many of you may be thinking. You're thinking, okay, John, surely the church is more than its gathering, right? We gather, but then we scatter. Do we cease to be the church? Are we not the church throughout the week? Well, of course we are on Monday through Saturday, Saturday, but think of it like a basketball team, right? The Phoenix Suns are still the Suns when they're not playing a game, but the essence of who they are as the Suns happens when they play the game, right? The Suns aren't reduced to their games, but if they don't play a game, they're not the Suns. It's the same with the local church. We are more than our gathering together, but we are certainly not less. Unless we gather in a physical time and space, we are not redeeming grace, church. Friends, this is how God designed it to be. 
This is why the church shutdowns last year were felt so unnatural to us. Yes, it was an exception to an exceptional time for public health. But when the church doesn't gather, it cuts against the very fabric of what God has designed us to be as Christians. So let me comfort your hearts this morning. You will never see virtual church as a strategy of Redeeming Grace Church as long as I'm the pastor here. Virtual church is an oxymoron. It would be like saying I have an immaterial body or an unrelated family. It's a non-thing. When a so-called church is virtual, it ceases to be a biblical church. Perhaps you've wondered, well, is this the way that Christians throughout church history understood understood it to be? Well, yes, absolutely. The Didache, an early second century document, exhorted Christians on the Lord's Day, assemble. Justin Martyr in the second century and Hippolytus in the third both described the assembly of God's people on the Lord's Day. And of course, we don't just gather willy-nilly for whatever purpose we conceive of. So the reformers described a true church of Christ as a people who congregate and covenant together around the right and true preaching of the word and the right administering of Christ's ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. The congregation is not merely formed by our gathering, but by our gathering around a certain set of beliefs and commitments to each other. We gather to hear God's word. We gather to affirm one another's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, friends, in a profound and very real sense, we only know who Redeeming Grace Church is by gathering. At 10.30 every Sunday morning, we emerge here at 3673 South Bullard Avenue to become visible to ourselves. We meet together all at once as the gathering, not in multiple services or in multiple campuses. We are a gathering. We are the ecclesia. We are the church. And friends, when we gather, something supernatural happens. Our hearts begin to pulse with love for one another because we're bound together in the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We see those whom we are discipling and those who are discipling us. We sing together and we pray together and we receive God's word together as the body, as a family, as a flock. What advantage I have from this pulpit week in and week out as I proclaim God's word over saints who I know are in the thick of the fight. Those who have lost loved ones and who struggle with discouragement and are going through marital conflict and lust and job frustrations and a whole host of other things, but whose very presence in the gathering signifies that they're committed to pursuing Jesus by faith because they're here with us. And together we believe the same gospel and we confess the same Jesus and we sing the same songs and we share the same bread and cup. It's here at the gathering that the people whom Jesus has redeemed and cleansed by his power will point you again and again to the sufficiency of his grace and the glory of his gospel. We gather to be a gathering. Number two, we gather as the people of God. One of the most beautiful truths of the gospel is that when God reconciled us to himself, he reconciled us to each other. He didn't just save us from the penalty of sin. He gave us a family. 
Did you see that in, in Ephesians 2, as Jerry read earlier? You can take your bullets and look at verse 13. I don't think we have the verse numbers, so you have to track with me. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Why? That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So that now in Christ, we are together fellow citizens of the household of God and growing together as a holy temple in the Lord. First Peter 2.10 says it this way. Peter said, once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Did you hear that? Peter said side by side, God's mercy to us in Christ and being made God's people. We're not just a person, individuals saved by grace. He's rescued us to be part of a people, to have a relationship with him and enjoy all the blessings of the covenant that he has made with us together. Friends, the majority of this sermon is for believers, those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. So let me just say quickly to our unbelieving friends here this morning, if you're not a Christian, this is one reason that we so desperately want you to come to Jesus and to give your life to him. To embrace by faith his death on the cross as having been in your place and his resurrection from the dead to be for your life. So that, yes, you might know God's mercy and forgiveness of your sin, but that more so you might be made part of God's people. So that you might be reconciled to him with us. There's no greater good in the universe than to be included in the people of God. And for us as God's people, to know him as our God. He's our Lord. We gather together as a people united to each other by God through Christ. The New Testament uses several images or metaphors to describe this corporate reality. And we don't have time to look at them all this morning. So we're just going to look at three of them, three of the images to describe God's people and how, how they affect our understanding of what we do when we gather. First of all, the church is an embassy of the kingdom. You know, sadly, the idea of an embassy usually only grabs our attention when in an international crisis like is going on right now in Afghanistan. Last week, we saw the helicopter landing on the U.S. Embassy in Kabul to get diplomats out. What's an embassy? Well, it represents the sovereignty of one country within another country. The moment that you as an American citizen step foot in an embassy overseas, you enjoy all the rights and privileges of your American citizenship in that place. You step out of one nation and into another. That's how God has designed it to be when we gather as the church. You should still be in Matthew 18. If you're not, let's go back there. Matthew 18. In verses 15 to 20, Jesus laid out what his disciples are to do if someone is living in flagrant, public, unrepentant sin. 
There's a process that culminates with the sin being made known to the church. And if the person refuses to listen to the church, then he's treated no longer as an insider, but as an outsider, as someone who needs to come to faith and repentance in Jesus. Then in verse 18, Jesus gives the church his authority to pronounce heaven's judgment or evaluation about the erring brother on the earth. The church is given Jesus' authority to bind and loose with what he calls in chapter 16, the keys of the kingdom. It's Jesus' royal grant to the church to speak in his name. Now, I would love to say more about that, okay? but we don't have time this morning. If you want to know more about that, come to the Ecclesiology Seminar over the next 11 weeks, and we'll talk more about it. But notice, when and where does the church exercise heaven's rule and heaven's reign on earth? Look at verse 19. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them in heaven. For where two or three of these, these mutually agreed ones, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Friends, did you see it? When does heaven come to earth? so to speak. Where does Jesus' authority and presence especially dwell? It's when two or three who agree to use that royal authority that Jesus, is, that Jesus gave them come together as the church. And when does that happen? Again, it, a little bit redundant. It happens when they are gathered together, Jesus says. Jesus says, I authorize that gathering. I'm there with my people. In the gathering, Heaven comes to earth. The gathered church is like an outpost of God's kingdom rule. Paul picked up this idea in Ephesians 2.19 in the passage that Jerry read, that God's people are fellow citizens with the saints. Fellow citizens of what? Of the heavenly kingdom. So that when the church gathers, it's like a sneak preview of heaven. Similarly, Paul told the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We're ambassadors. It's, It's kingdom embassy language, isn't it? Together we herald the message of the king of heaven on foreign soil, so to speak. Yes, we do this individually, but friends, in a profound way, we are ambassadors for Christ together, an embassy of heaven in time and space when we gather as the church. We embody, we make visible our distinct corporate reality. Friends, each Sunday at 1030 when the church gathers, it's as if we raise the banner of King Jesus high in this place. His authority is known here. Here is where the king's message is heralded by ambassadors who want to make him known. This is the place, friends, where you're not fundamentally known as an American or as Taiwanese or as Chinese or as Mexican or as a Guatemalan. Here is the place where you are known as a Christian, as a citizen of heaven and a follower of the risen king. Friends, as much as I love the United States, You're never going to see me wear patriotic gear when the church gathers. Not not because I'm progressive. I am very patriotic. But I won't do that because I want to make it abundantly clear that this is not the gathering of the American church, but of the church of the Lord Jesus. 
a snapshot of the coming kingdom made up of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. You might be thinking, so when we gather, how do we exercise the authority of King Jesus? What happens most obviously through the preaching of God's word and the receiving of the ordinances, the celebrating of the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. When I stand up here week in and week out or whoever preaches, I'm not preaching my own message, God willing, but seeking by grace to serve as heaven's mouthpiece. I'm an ambassador of the king. And when you as the church affirm that message, you're guarding the church's doctrine and committing to live in faithful obedience to God's word as ambassadors of the king. Baptism and church membership are like the front gate of Jesus's embassy. The church, to the best of our ability, declares heaven's judgment about people who confess with Peter, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then in the Lord's Supper, we proclaim Christ's death until he comes and we affirm one another's faith as we share this kingdom meal around the king's banquet table with other, other citizens of heaven who are saved by grace alone. But while preaching the gospel and celebrating the ordinance are the, are the primary ways that represent Christ's kingship and declare heaven's judgments in the gathering, we do it in other ways as well, don't we? When we pray and we confess our sins together as we did earlier, we proclaim to the world that we agree with heaven's verdict against us. We are sinners in need of God's mercy. When we sing together, we shout to all who will hear us that we agree with heaven's perspective that God is worthy of our highest praise, that he is where joy in life is found. Beloved, what we want to see happen here at Redeeming Grace Church in an increasing way is that the culture of the kingdom of heaven permeates this embassy. So that when an unbeliever walks in here, what they see, what they hear, what they experience is not the culture of that kingdom out there, but the culture of heaven. We want them to encounter the poor in spirit and the meek and the peacemakers and those who are willing to walk the extra mile who turn the other cheek. We want them to see that we are Christ's disciples by the love that we have one for another. We represent Christ's kingship in word and in deed. And we do it first when we gather together. We're an embassy of the kingdom. Number two, we're a holy temple. The church is a holy temple. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul asked the church at Corinth, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Friend, all of the yous in that verses are in the plural in the original Greek. Do y'all not know that y'all together are the temple of God, and that it's in you all together that God's Spirit dwells? Paul made the same point in Ephesians 2, again, that we referenced several times this morning. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the entire structure being joined together grows into a what? Into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Friends, where does God dwell? God dwells in the church. 
Yes, of course, God is omnipresent. He's not limited to one space or one time. But friends, it has always been God's way to manifest his covenant presence in a particular place among his people. Just think of the Garden of Eden. It was the dwelling place of God with his people, as was Israel's tabernacle, as was the temple in Jerusalem. And then, of course, God manifests his covenant presence fully and finally in the person of Jesus Christ, his son, Emmanuel, the perfect temple, the one who gives us access to the Father. And so that now all those united by faith through the Spirit to Jesus are temples of the Holy Spirit. This is true of each believer individually, but friends, it is true profoundly corporately. God's spirit by grace takes up his residence, not just in you, but in you and among us. We are being built for a dwelling place for the spirit. I love how Paul even phrased that, right? The structure is being joined together. It's progressive. We are being built into a dwelling place for the spirit. We'll never arrive, will we, to be the perfect temple. <laughs> We're never going to be the perfect, flawless church, but our aim is progression in holiness by grace. So what does this mean for our gatherings? Friends, it means that God's temple has a church shape to it. We encounter the spirit and we live out the life of the spirit each time we gather from the time we walk in, we're rubbing shoulders with, with other spirit-indwelt believers in a real and tangible way. We don't gather, do we, as, as individuals who come in and we sit in our little pod in our chair and then we have our personal quiet time with others watching. It's not what we're doing. We come to meet with God by meeting with his people. Friends, we don't need to turn the lights down and get a smoke machine or Otherwise, try to manufacture some sort of spiritual experience. Why would we do that when we are corporally indwelt by the Spirit of God? God has already done the manufacturing by His grace in us. We together worship as priests in God's temple. So we want to see each other. We want to hear each other. We want to learn from each other. You know, when the benedictions, amen, fades away, we don't automatically bolt for the exit to get to what's next. No, we stay around and we encourage one another. Why? Because we share in the communal life of the same spirit as God's temple. Paul, in, in the next chapter, in Ephesians 3, told that church that through this holy temple, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, this is verse 10, is being made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Friends, every time we gather, it is a jaw-dropping display of grace. The angelic realm turns and stands in wonder at the grace that you would unite under the gospel, Jew and Gentile. We're people from all different backgrounds and ethnicities and social economic classes and individual preferences share the same spirit and are united underneath the unsearchable riches of Christ. Friends, just think about it. Here in our gathering, Tattooed tough guys, tenderized by grace, 
sing God's praises across from the sweet elderly grandmother. Jewish converts rescued by mercy take the supper next to Gentiles from Latino and European and African and Asian descent. Families seeking to persevere by grace worship joyfully with the single man who loves King Jesus. And then when the service dismisses, it's like a family reunion breaks out. Friends, this is the type of thing that should leave the world speechless. There's nothing human that can explain it except the power of the gospel and the transforming work of the Spirit gathering Christ's church and uniting it together. The church is the holy temple. Finally, the church is the body of Christ. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I failed to list the page number. I apologize. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Friends, we live in a highly individualized society, don't we? We've been taught by our culture to conceive of ourselves, not primarily in terms of our relationship to other people, but in terms of who we are by ourselves. The self reigns. Even social media that promises virtual relationships, it's often just a pretense for the promotion of the self. And you access those relationships with just you and a screen. The irony. Cue the church the body of Christ. Yet it's true that all God's people throughout space and time are his body on earth. But the New Testament is clear that each local congregation embodies Christ in a unique way. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. Now, Paul here is using the image of a body and its parts, right? The members are eyes and ears and appendages. These members, he would go on to say in the following verses, work together for the good of the body. And each member is indispensable to the body. Now look at verse 24. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you, Corinthian church, are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Friends, what a beautiful image of the church. We have a membership in the body of Christ. This is where we get that, that term that we use so frequently you know, when we use the, the term church membership, we're not using it like our culture does. You may think that's true, but we're not. We're not talking about membership at Costco or joining a gym. We're not talking about paying dues for services rendered. No, we're talking about a mutual commitment for each other's good, like a body part and the body. 
It's a vital connection to nourish the body and strengthen the body and fight off disease and grow the body. So friends, you can see the obvious implication. If you're a member of Redeeming Grace Church and you forsake the gathering of the body, it's as if you're like an amputated body part stuffed in a freezer in a basement. It's a graphic image, but that's the reality. You are not vitally connected to the body if you don't gather with it. How do we know you're part of the family unless you gather with the family at the dinner table? No wonder the author of Hebrews wrote no, not to neglect meeting together. Hebrews 10.24 says this, and let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet Together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Friends, how will you and I persevere in a world full of increasing hostility against Christ and his cross? How will we persevere in a world full of enticements and temptations to draw our affection away from the Lord Jesus? Well, Hebrews clearly says following Jesus means that we help others follow Jesus. We encourage one another in the faith as we see the coming day approaching. But what might keep us from living out that type of Christianity? What might keep us from living out that holy vision? Well, according to the plain reading of the Bible, neglecting to meet together. Brothers or sister, if you don't gather with God's people, it will hurt you spiritually and it will hurt others because you're not there to stir them up to love and good deeds. Friends, I hope it's obvious by now that we simply cannot do the Hebrews 10.25 and 1 Corinthians 12 version or vision of Christianity in the church only by watching a live stream or by listening to a podcast, we must gather. I love what Brett McCracken wrote in an article recently. He said, no YouTube video or Wikipedia entry can train us in virtue like the church can. No Twitch stream or subreddit can create sustainable edifying community like the church can. No Twitter debate can help us love our enemies like the church can. No activist hashtag can channel our righteous anger and longing to do justice and love mercy like the church can. No Spotify worship playlist can replicate the glory of the embodied congregational singing. No celebrity pre preacher's blog or podcast can replicate the gift of a pastor you can sit across from known and loved even in your darkest moments. No confessional vulnerability, quote unquote, on social media, however many likes it receives, is as satisfying as intimate confession with members of your church family. Yes and amen. Friends, this is the beauty of the church. This is why we gather. Friends, if you're a, a professing believer and, and you gather week in and week out with us, but are taking no steps toward a vital connection to the body, like a member to the body here at Redeeming Grace Church, if you're not taking steps to commit yourself here, friends, it's not just about being here, 
But if you're not a vitally connected to a local church, friends, you will live a malnourished Christian life at best. God has designed something so much greater for you to be attached to the body, to belong to a family. As one author said, a lone ranger Christian is like a detached prosthetic limb. Friends, we have a membership class that runs the first three weeks of every month at 9.15. That's step one of just a, a process of wisdom that we take to help people get to know us and us to get to know them. But more than that, if you would like to know more about what it looks like to be a, an attached member of the body here at Redeeming Grace Church, it would be a high privilege for me to talk with you. Shoot me an email. It's all my, my email's on the back of the bulletin. Text me, whatever. We would love to welcome you in here. In closing, let me give you a few short points of application and we'll be done. Brothers and sisters, make the gathering of the church an immovable pillar in your life. It's something that does not move. Other things move around it. This is who you are, so this is what you do. You gather every Sunday. I've heard it said that gathering on Sunday is a Saturday decision. That if you wait until Sunday morning to see how you feel and decide whether or not to come, you, you've already lost the battle. And I agree with the thrust of that statement. Gathering on Sunday is more than a Sunday decision. But I think it's also more than a Saturday decision. It should be a life commitment. Friends, when you feel least like attending the gathering of God's people is when you need it the most. You need the encouragement of the body and the truth of the word and the worship of God's people. So friends, I exhort you, do not let your feelings make your decision about whether to attend church, to attend the gathering. Instead, let truth and conviction be in the driver's seat of your heart. Number two, don't underestimate the ministry of presence. How often I've been encouraged merely by looking across the room when I'm down, when I'm discouraged, when I'm fighting for faith, and I see a brother or sister singing their heart out who I know are going through the same thing as I am. Or I hear as I preach, as you sit there, we hear people responding verbally to the sermon right? We see the heads nodding. We hear the amens. We hear the, the praise of the Lord's and the hallelujahs and we're strengthened. We walk in and we receive the hug when we're down from a brother or sister. Friends, it would be difficult to overstate the ministry of presence that God has given to each one of us. Number three, gather prayerfully and expectantly. I write it at the end of every Saturday email preparing us for the service that I send out to our church family. Let's gather prayerfully and expectantly. Friends, if heaven comes to earth when Jesus' church gathers, if God makes his dwelling place here, if we embody Christ together when we gather, then ought we not to pray for a full display of that gospel grace among us? And should we not expect the triune God to be at work? Let's pray.
Father, we praise you this morning. Then when we were not a people, you have made us a people. When we had not received mercy, you gave us mercy. Father, it's staggering to think of the grace not only that has forgiven us of our sin, but as a, that has included us in the family of God. Father, I praise you this morning for the many ways that these dear, sweet brothers and sisters here at Redeeming Grace Church have encouraged me and my family, have strengthened me and our family in, 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 our, in our walk in Christ, have cared for us and loved us. And Father, this story could be told of over and over and over again of the members of this church and their love for one another. Oh, Father, increase that love. Help us not to gather out of a sense of duty only or just to check some spiritual box, but out of a deep sense of the privilege that we have to gather, to be a gathering as the people of God, as the, the corporate people redeemed by your grace and cleansed of our sin and transformed by your spirit, to be an embassy of the King, to be a holy temple, to be the body of Christ, to be the family of God, to be God's flock, to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. Oh, Father, what a privilege. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be faithful ambassadors of you. God making his appeal through us be reconciled to God. We pray. Father, we thank you for what you're doing among us. We ask that you might do more of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.